friends, welcome back to the show. It is my honor to be joined again by Dr. Stephen Prothro. How are you, sir? Great. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is an honor to, to have you back on the podcast. And uh, I just realized that you live on Cape Cod. We just had this conversation before we started recording. And are you actually on like Cape Cod today or is today like in the office in Boston? No, I'm in Cape Cod. Are you happier on Cape Cod days than days in the office? You trying to get me in trouble with my with my boss? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just maybe projecting that's what I would be doing. Okay, yeah, so don't answer that I'm, question. I am much, much happier here. I am. Out, outstanding. Outstanding. Okay, let me tell you this story um, for how this interview came into be. Uh, I think years ago, I, I think I first got introduced to you because you've been on the uh, Stephen Colbert's old show, right? Weren't you on the Colbert Report? Yes, I was. Okay, I've, I've thought that's where I first got introduced to your work. And then I've got connected to Harper One, and so they're gracious enough to send me uh, a lot of the books that they have coming out. And so I get this new book, which is entitled God the Bestseller, and I see your name on it. You were on the last time uh, you, you had a, a book come out. And I thought, okay, I like this guy a lot. Really smart guy. Chance to talk to him. I looked at the cover for about three seconds, and I was like, I'm in. Let's do this. And then I started... Uh, like we we're going to do the podcast and I thought I probably need to read the book, which is what I typically do. Um, and so I'm reading the book and I'm like, Oh, I don't want to read a book about a, a an edit, editor at Harper one. I'm like, he clearly has to do this to keep his publication deal going with Harper one. Like he has to do one for them to kind of suck up to his publisher, which I, I get it. Like I've, I've published a couple of books. I get how that works. And so then I was like, wow, Dr. Prothor, you kind of talked me into something, not you, but your publicist did. And then like just a few pages into the book, I was like, Oh, I get it. Okay. So at first I was like, why am I reading a book? But then I realized quickly, oh, this isn't just about one guy. This is a, like a much bigger story that you're telling. And uh, so you won me over relatively quick with the book. And I just want to say well done on that. Thank you. Yeah. You know, to be honest, I had a similar feeling when I ran across the archives of this guy and I was thinking, oh man, I'm going to have to write a book about him. And then I thought, I just don't know if he's that interesting. And then I started talking about him to a friend of mine and she said oh, who's a writer and she said well just tell me about him I said well you know he was a farm boy you know he was going to church one night and he was riding his horse and all of a sudden his horse like pulled up and stopped and he looked up and he saw God and for the rest of his life he's just trying to do it again and she's like what do you mean? That's that's not interesting. <laughs> she kept asking me a series of series of questions. You know, well, what else did he do? Well, then you know he tried LSD in order to see God again. You know, did that work? <laughs> not really. Well, then what else did he do? You know, so um, so she kind of convinced me, and I I think he's got an interesting personal story and professional story both. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, let's let's dig more into that story. So, uh, family is not too far away from where you're located. And you get this invitation to come read through this guy's kind of library at home. And you, as I, I read the book, it since seems that you kind of begrudgingly go over there. And so you show up. It, do you have like a, a pattern of like showing up at random people's houses and going through all their books? I mean, what, what, why, why did you say yes to that? I just walk around town and I knock and I say, <laughs> hey, do you have any old relation books I can look at? That, that, that's one of, one of the reasons I love living on Cape Cod. No, I, yeah, uh, there you go. Why not? Um, the um, the woman, his daughter, uh, called me and invited me over, and and I ended up 
she ended up passing away actually before I was able to arrange it. And then her husband, who was Eugene Axman, who's the editor, his son-in-law took me through. And yeah, I was thinking it was an obligation. Uh, I was hoping I was going to get in and out of there pretty quickly. And then, you know, the first book I opened was Martin Luther King's Stride Toward Freedom. And I opened it up and I looked and I was like, oh, it's the first edition. That's kind of cool. And then I looked farther in and I see a letter from Coretta Scott King and it says, Dear Jean, you know, um, I forget the ex exactly what it said, but something like, you know, thanks so much for coming down to Montgomery to convince Martin to write his first book. You've been such a supporter of peace and justice and civil rights movement. And then I'm thinking, who is, who is this guy who lives five minutes who from, is this guy? from my house? And then, then the next book I saw was the big book of AA, published in 1939. Mm -hmm. And inside it, the co-founder of AA, Bill Wilson, writes a similar you know, similar inscription to X-Men. Thanks so much for being there. Thanks for editing the first few chapters of the big book of AA. You know, our movement never would have been the same without your participation. So yeah, that drew me in. And I, and then, you know, I was looking at all the books and then I said, Hey, do you have any papers? And over the course of the next year, uh, Walter, Walter Kess, who's the son-in-law, he just kept bringing stuff out of the barn and letting me paw through it. And that's how the book started. Yeah. And so you've mentioned a couple of the big names. There's obviously plenty more, um, you know, Dorothy Day, Niebuhr, uh, uh, Deschardins, uh, Houston Smith. I mean, there's just a lot of big names who have been very influential in what Christianity is in America, for, and, and more than just America, but especially America over the last hundred years. And so he's he, he's kind of like a guy who's behind the scenes that's making a lot of things happen that have dictated and influenced the Christianity that I kind of grew up with and you know I'm I'm from a I was born in Philadelphia lived in a small town in Ohio when I was in middle school and high school so uh you know a couple hours away but I can uh, imagine like small town Ohio boy having such a big influential voice in this it, it could not have been how anyone imagined his life going Yeah that's right I mean he he wanted to be a missionary coming right out of high school and even into college and he actually got a job to go to to Beijing, Peking then, uh, to do that. And he was convinced not to. And then he got a job in publishing and, and in religion publishing and decided that that would be his, his mission. And he was extraordinarily successful. You know, he was driven by this mystical experience he had as a teenager to go mm -hmm. and just find other people who had had mystical experiences and talk with him about that. And those people became his friends. And then in many cases, they became his authors, and in some cases, they became, you know, co-editors with him, co-workers with him at Harper. And uh, over the course of that professional life, you know, he published hundreds of bestsellers. Uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick is another big name out of yeah. uh, Riverside Park in the liberal Protestant, uh, you know, vein, close uh, friend of Martin Luther King, also influential uh, preacher and public figure in the in the early center half of the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and, and, you know, the way I see it is that he really transformed the country in terms of reshifting the understanding of religion from doctrine and ritual to experience yeah. from a kind of more communitarian idea to a more individual idea. And this is, this is, you know, the water we swim in now in the United States for people who are religious, people who are spiritual, people who are spiritual, but not religious. You know, we all have this sense, or so many of us has this sense that what religion really is about is experience. It's not about believing. It's about having something happen to you. 
And everything he published was in that vein. They were autobiographies, they were biographies, uh, and they really, you know, he would be at retreats and people would start talking about doctrine. He would say, you know, hold up his hand, like, can we stop this conversation? That's not why we're here. We're here to talk about experience. There's a God, there's humans who have some potential connection with God. We want to experience God and we want to know how to do it. Like, that's why we're here. We want to figure that whole thing, whole thing out. And his books, each in its different way, pointed us, I think, in that direction. Yeah, you have this uh, section of the book, I want to I read it for my listeners, where you go, this graveyard experience, which is what you just described a few minutes ago about uh, Eugene when he was a teenager. This graveyard experience was momentary and it could easily have been fleeting. Uncanny experiences of this sort are far more common than most of us imagine. Almost all human beings have them at some point in their lives. All too often, we shake our heads and explain them away. Oh, we had too much to drink, perhaps, or not enough to eat. We had a fever or maybe stress had gotten the best of us. Uh, there are all sorts of ways to forget events like this, but Eugene did not walk away, walk in those ways. He chose to remember this moment. Okay, so you make the statement that almost all human beings have them at some point in their lives. Uh, you're a religion professor. You've studied this for a long time. What led you to make that statement that most people have had an experience of some sort? Well, I haven't interviewed them all, I have to say. That's all. <laughs> well, That's fair. Them. That's fair. But you know, the influence for me is a woman named Ann Tate. She's a, she's a, a retired professor from UC Santa Barbara. She wrote an amazing book. Uh, called Revelatory Events, where she studied three really important uh, moments in religious history, one of which was the founding of, uh, or what we now see as the founding of Mormonism, Church uh, of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, when Joseph Smith had a vision, and he goes back and he talks to his father about it. And um, another one was the founding of AA, when Bill Wilson has a mystical experience, and he goes and talks to a friend about it. And the same happens with Muhammad. She doesn't cover Muhammad, but, you know, Muhammad has is going to this cave for many years. And all of a sudden he starts hearing voices there and he goes back and he talks to his wife. And she could have said, you know, like I said, that's crazy, you know, like snap out of it. But instead she says, tell me about it. And next thing you know, you know, we have the Quran. So I, I just think um, there's a lot of experiences we have that are hard to explain. I, I don't believe that when people have these experiences, they immediately say like, oh, that's Jesus. Oh, that's God. Oh, that's the Buddha. I think they just have a weird experience and they see a light or they see, they hear a sound or there's some combination or or whatever. And then they start to tell themselves stories. Like this happens with all of us, like not just with uncanny events, but like this, but ordinary events, you know, like what happened at the birthday party? You know, why did, why did that person get mad at me? You know, um, whatever it might be that we, we find the meaning of experiences after they happen like that. That's how human beings are. And I just, I just think, you know, in my own experience, you know, I've had weird things happen to me and I don't really know exactly what to, what to make of it. And, um, you know, people who have studied this more than I say, this is pretty common, you know, William, uh, William James, you know, in his varieties of religious experience, he says the same thing. Um, so yeah, so, you know, I'm extrapolating from things I've read, um, but, yeah. but it makes sense to me. Yeah, no, I, I would definitely concur with it. And we will obviously get to William James as he's a major part of the story, but I, I would definitely say that, um, 
you know, me personally, and I think from my experience as a pastor, like I think most people have had some experience and, you know, some traditions don't give us the vocabulary to describe what the experience was. And some traditions give more than enough vocabulary to maybe over explain it. Uh, but as I understand Christianity, the religion that I'm obviously a part of, it, Christianity is less about an I, I, a set of ideas that we hold, but it is an experience and encounter with God. And so that's the language that I've used for years, but I never would have understood the way that Eugene Exum probably played a role in, in, in getting to there. And obviously William James is a psychologist who, and, and more than that, but he helped shape uh, Exum. But I would have just said that that's, I mean, I've written that before. I've preached that before, but I didn't understand, oh, behind the scenes, this is a guy who's publishing these books, who's helping push this movement forward so that we can have this conceptualization of what religion is. I think that's right. And of course, he's not inventing it out of whole cloth, right? You have the first great awakening of the 1700s. You have the second great awakening of the 1830s and 40s, where people are having revivals, where they're very much saying, you know, what Christianity is about is about experience. It's not about it's not about doctrine. It's not about coming to some new belief. It's about coming to an experiential encounter with Jesus, right? We have that. We have the transcendentalists like um, like Emerson, who's saying, yeah. don't take your religion secondhand. Take your religion firsthand. Get it straight. Get it straight from, you know, whatever. Yeah. And then he had vague, vague notions of, of who the whatever, you know, who the whatever was. Um, we have, you know, the emergence of Pentecostalism in the early 20th century. That's that makes Christianity very much even more so about uh, experiential. Um, and we have William James. And I think in the varieties of religious experience in the early 20th century, where he, around the same time as the Azusa Street Revival, where he's making this this claim. And I think what X-Men does is he popularizes this stuff. You know, this is what yeah. this is what good editors do. They find, they sort of tap into the zeitgeist of a time, the spirit of the age, and they find people to articulate stuff that, um, you know, will like will be popular, but already sort of is popular, but hasn't exactly been articulated. And he was just a genius at finding these finding these people who could say, you know, what you said, religion is about, you know, individual experience and encounter with the divine. And um, and he, he found people to do that inside the Christian tradition in the Buddhist tradition, the Hindu tradition, Catholicism, Judaism. Um, all those traditions, he was finding people to reach out to general readers in the, in the United States. Yeah. Uh, I, I like how you said, I mean, he's a popularizer. He takes ideas. I, I think the, the word that was used in the book was middlebrow to say that uh, obviously there's highbrow stuff and lowbrow, which seems to be obviously looked down upon, but middlebrow, as I understood, I, I like, I'd love for you to correct me, but middlebrow is like how most people talk, how they would how they would interact with the idea. And so he's taking, popularizing these ideas that maybe aren't accessible for everyone, but making it accessible to all. Is that fair? Yeah, that's right. And when you read his letters to his writers all the time, he's saying, and one way he frames this is that, okay, we know you're a Lutheran. Like, can you just write for for general readers? You know, like don't use like specific Lutheran language or we know you're a Christian or we know you're a Catholic. Remember, we want Protestant readers too, or we know you're Mm -hmm. African-American, but we also want white readers. So like write to this like broader, um, broader audience. And this was, you can be cynical about it and say, well, that's about selling books. Like you don't want to narrow your market, right? You don't want to just sell like Lutheran men over 65 years old. Like that's not going to be as good. You can sell to like people of all ages and all faiths. So, um, so that was there, but also 
as I said before, you know, he's a kind of a missionary for these ideas. He's a missionary for the idea that there is a God, that humans can experience God, and that we can experiment in various ways to figure out the best way to experience God, the best way to find God. Um, and he believes that's what he's doing. And so he wants people to read his books. He wants people to own them. He wants some people to mark them up and come return to them. He wants people to be in small groups and talk about them so that they will be more likely to have these kinds of encounters themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about a couple of the people that he rubs shoulders with and helps popularize their work. Uh, you mentioned uh, the pastor from New York who was early, uh, a big influence in the early 1900s, uh, Henry Fostick. Yeah, Harry, is that Harry Emerson Fostick. Harry. He's writing mostly yeah. in like the 1930s, 1940s, um, some books in the 50s as well. Mm-hmm. So he's writing, he's at, uh, he's at a church. Uh, Exum has attends a service, takes a while for him to ask him to write a book. Um, at this time, he also loses his pastor at one church. And then uh, what was the, the big rich guy uh, who got behind him? Yeah, Rockefeller. Um, John D. Rockefeller. Yeah, Rockefeller. That's kind of a big name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah probably shouldn't forget that name. Yeah. Uh, so he gets behind him, gets him in another church. Rockefeller is kind of influential. It's always nice to have you know a person that wealthy who's behind you. That makes things a lot easier. Um, and so... We, so he's this, uh, a guy who was, I think in your book, you referenced him as like one of America's pastors. And and so he's he's connecting to this guy who he's listening to his sermons. And he, one of the things it sounds like they're pushing against is like the divide of Freud and Jung, who Freud is saying that religion is the cause of problems. Jung is making that the argument that religion actually can be part of the solution to this. Uh, Fosdick is, is pushing, obviously, to say it's religion's not the problem. It's actually part of the solution. How would that have been received from, quote unquote, America's pastor back then? Yeah, so the context here, I think the easiest context to think about is the period like between World War One and World War Two, or immediately after World War Two, and and th- these were like mm-hmm. really really difficult decades for many people in the United States, not least because of the wars that were killing people, but because mm-hmm. of the ways in which it overturned what had been a belief in progress in much of the modern West. You know that we're heading toward progress, things are getting better and better, yeah. um, war is going away. The economy is improving, et cetera, et cetera. And his generation, X-Men's generation, very early on, he's born in 1900. So as a teenager, World War I, as a, a 20-something, you know, the Great Depression, uh, in his middle age, World War II. And this brought on a, what, uh, this brought on like a crisis of meaning. And, and a lot of people were saying like, we the wars indicate we don't need to believe in God anymore. We shouldn't believe in God anymore. Where, where is God? You know, God has left us. Um, and others said, no, the problem with the contemporary world is our materialism, our um, focus on stuff. And we need to get back to God. We need to exp- experience God, not just believe in God, experience God. And this is where Fosdick was. This is where, Emer- uh, where X-Men was, my author, I mean, my editor. And, you know, Fosdick... Uh, Fosdick was really into what we would now call the psychology of religion or pastoral psychology. He was a pioneering pastoral psychologist. He uh, was one of the first Protestants who would like bring his parishioners into his office. Tell me about your tell me about your problems. And and uh, he wrote books about, you know, how to be an integrated person, how to be a full person. This like more sort of psychological spirituality uh, focused concepts of religion. They're very, very popular now, both in, you know, 
common, you know, churches, but also in the book world. Uh, so, yeah, he was a really important figure. Um, his sermons were widely read by uh, Martin Luther King, had a big influence on on uh, on Martin Luther King. And he was probably Fosdick um, had a TV. Sh- uh, sorry, had a radio show that was heard on Sunday evenings by tens of millions of people. Um, he was a very, very influ- influential figure and set up Riverside Church in Manhattan, which was for for decades the flagship liberal Protestant church in the United States. Now, one of the things I found interesting about his work is that he attempted to find a third way between the apparent divide between the fundamentalists and the liberals. Uh, maybe didn't materialize the way that he wanted, but what do you think he was trying to accomplish as trying to create this third way between what seemed like a um, apparent divorce between this part of Christendom and America. Yeah. So he was active in what's called the the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the uh, 1920s. Um, And he wrote this famous sermon called shall the fundamentalist win. And it's been, been mostly interpreted as a kind of rallying cry for liberal Protestants, modernist Protestants um, who don't believe that Christianity is about the literal interpretation of the Bible and don't believe that it's mostly creedal. They think it's something else, mostly ethical maybe, or experiential. And uh, so he was part of that, but but I make this argument in the book based on, you know, reading the sermon and also letters that, that Fosdick wrote about it, that he really, his argument was, don't kick us out of the church. It wasn't, we want to kick you out of the church. And now... Yeah. We're in this period, I think, where everybody wants to kick everybody else out of the church and, and frankly, out of the United States. And, uh, you know, Fosdick was trying to say, no, the church should be a big tent. We should have people in it who believe in these fundamental, what they call the fundamentals of the faith. And we should have people in it who, who believe in the social gospel, that sin is social and salvation is social. And that's what's, what's really important. Luckily, we don't have that problem anymore, and it sounds like that's been solved, and so everyone gets along these days. But uh, for my reader or listeners who weren't around back then, how did that uh, that sermon go over? Well, it went over very poorly among fundamentalists and very well among liberals. I mean, it it, it elevated him to this really primary position among Protestant uh, liberal Protestant uh, pastors in the United States. And it was it was publicized by the uh, Rockefeller family's uh, marketing and publicity guy. They they printed a lot of the sermon. They circulated it. So it really turned him into it turned him into the spokesman for liberal Protestantism well into the middle of the 20th century. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things that he he made the argument, it seemed like uh, Fosdick, that um, not all religions are the same. And that he tried to create a message that um, they are not the same. And Exum, do you think that that would have been a message that would have been maybe a little bit uh, different than the way he would have said it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I wrote this. I wrote this whole book years ago called um, "God Is Not One," and the argument in that was that religions are different. You know that religions aren't the same. It's popular to think about them as the same. It's popular to think of religions as different paths up the same mountain. Um, and converging on God at the top. Uh, it doesn't really matter which path you take as long as you get to the get to the top. This is uh, referred to as perennialism, the perennial philosophy, different names. Uh, and one thing that so excited me when I found this archive at the, you know, like dozens and dozens of boxes of letters from 
so many famous writers and you know, yeah. political figures and business people, whatever, uh, was that it kind of directly argues against me. You know, it, it, you know, so many of his authors are perennialists. They believe religions are essentially the same. Yeah. But Fosdick, I think part of it was Fosdick was was kind of in the younger, I mean, sorry, not younger. He's the older of this group of his, of X-Men's uh, authors. And he agreed with me, you know, he, he just thought that Christianity was different uh, from Buddhism. And um, he didn't think they could be uh, said to be the same. And that was his view. X-Men was more of a perennialist. He, he was attracted to authors who wanted to jump over the interreligious divides. He was very widely read in Buddhism and Hinduism. He was aware of the astute psychological um, observations in those traditions. And he knew about mystics in those traditions. And he was he agreed with, with William James that the, the mystics are where it's at. And mystics yeah. seem to say similar things. Why do they seem to say similar things? Because they don't really think you can explain the experience of an encounter with God. Like you're just fumbling around with poetry and metaphor and whatever. Ah, you know, how can I say anything about this? So um, he was attracted to those people. But yeah, he was on a different side from Fosdick, although they were friends and agreed on so many things, including their pacifism. He was on a different side in terms of the all religions are one question. But based on your previous book, you're going to say he was right and Exum was wrong on that subject. Well, I'll say that here, but I, mean, <laughs> I don't say that in the book. But I, I have to say, I have a renewed respect for the for perennialism. I think that why is that? Well, you know, from the I'm a religious studies professor, okay? So, you know, I have to mm -hmm. look at these, and I do, and I want to look at these traditions, religious traditions, historically. And I want to take seriously the claims people make about their own, their own faith. Um, and when you talk to Buddhists or Hindus or Jews and you talk to Christians, they're not, just, they're not saying the same thing. And they're just yeah. not. That said... Why does this idea emerge? Well, in the modern period, it emerges because we want to prevent religious warfare. You know, we want to prevent people from killing each other because like, you know, Jesus is with me and someone else is with you. And so I'm going to kill you in the name of Jesus. Like, we don't want that, right? Uh, I hope and your listeners do not want that. Yeah, we, um, we, none of us want that. We don't want to kill yeah, each other. Okay, no, so, we want to stop that. So, you know, um, and, you know, truth be told, Religious ideas and institutions and leaders and books have played a huge role in people killing other people over the course of human uh, history. Now, they've also played a huge role in, you know, in making justice and making peace. And yeah. X-Men was a pacifist. And almost all of his most famous authors, Martin Luther King, Dorothy Day, um, Harry Emerson Fosdick, um, Albert Schweitzer, these people were all pacifists. Um, and so... So part of their perennialism was ethical. You know, they just didn't want people to kill one another over religion. And that makes sense to me. I mean, that, I feel like everyone should be able to get behind that statement. Let's just not kill each other over. I mean, just just end sentence right there. Let's not kill each other. I think that's a, a good goal that everyone should be able to rally behind. But like you mentioned, uh, some of the authors back then, you just mentioned Dorothy Day. Uh Today, she's a beloved person that we talk about sainthood and we talk about her as someone to uphold and to like really admire and have a lot of respect for. You make the observation in the book, though, that then she was considered working for Stalin. 
And so we want to celebrate her in the same way that Dr. King is celebrated now. Back then, um, you know, history might not be too kind to that perspective that uh, he was beloved by all Christians or all Americans or whoever back then. Uh, Dorothy Day, though, specifically now considered for sainthood. Back then she was uh, considered yeah, working for, for Stalin. Yeah. Yeah. What made her so appealing, you think, to Exum? Yeah. You know, I'm not sure. She, uh, she came to him. I tell the story, you know, she came to him with a book idea and he was impressed. Um, he obviously read about her, you know, he's in New York. He's, uh, she's in New York. Um, he's reading about her in the papers. He is a pacifist. So he knows her, he knows her as a political activist and a political agitator and a pacifist mm-hmm. as well. And so I'm sure he was attracted to that. She was an incredibly charismatic person. Anybody that met her just was really impressed with her fire and mm-hmm. her sort of, you know, kick, kick ass. Can I say that? Kick ass attitude. Yeah, you, know? I think you just did. Um, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I think he was attracted to her as a person. I think he also knew that he had a great book on his hands. If she was able to tell the story of her life, which she did in her first uh, book with him, uh, the long loneliness. And then, the story of the Catholic worker movement, which she began in a second book with him called Loaves and Fishes. So, uh, so I think, uh, I think that was it. She's got this, uh, or you've got this line in the book. Um, oh, actually it's, it's from her, uh, where she says, uh, the subject matter is poverty. Um, and she says, we have grown literally afraid to be poor. We despise anyone who elects to be poor in order to simplify and save his inner life. Today we hear that word and go, oh, well, that's really commendable. And, you know, the move to simplicity or the move to a simplistic lifestyle is uphold, uh, upheld as something virtuous. Uh, back then, it led her to be understood to be uh, a communist. Why do you think that was so uh, confrontational back then to hear this sort of rhetoric? Well, it's in the middle of the Cold War. You know, she's, she's coming later in, in X-Men's, uh, you know, history after, you know, World War II. Yeah. And, um, and so Americans see themselves as in a, in a battle for the soul of the world between themselves and, and communists in Russia and in, in China. And so, and also she opposed World War II, you know, it, World War II was, was very, you know, there, there were very few people opposed to World War II in the United States. There were a lot more people opposed in uh, World War One, So that was very unpopular, um, but, but again, you know, uh, X-Men was aligned with her politics. He, he also opposed, opposed, uh, World War II. And I think he, I think he knew he was a kind of a person on the sidelines, you know, like he wasn't, he didn't go to jail. You know, she did. Um, yeah. he, he would fight, he would write letters on behalf of conscientious objectors to, to their, you know, Congress people. He would, he would write letters on behalf of people who are being investigated by the FBI, like Dorothy Day was and another friend of his was. He would write write letters uh, supporting them, saying, listen, you don't have to worry about, about these people. Um, but he he wasn't out there in the front lines. And I think, and maybe I'm projecting, but I think he must have been impressed by her, you know, for the way she was willing to put her life on the line. Yeah. 
Yeah. It, it seemed like he, he found a way to surround himself. I, I think the, the language used was like this group of, of mystics. And he found this group of people that there are various different figures that kind of pop in and pop out in his life that are very impressive, that seem like they're feeding that childhood experience of this mystical encounter with God uh, by the graveyard when he's a teenager. And now he has all these people that are kind of influencing and helping him continue to push towards this experience. And he clearly was part of the movement to help uh, some people feel the need to be unencumbered by religion, to have a sort of like spiritual but not religious encounter. Is that fair to say? You're shaking your head yes. Yeah, I think that's right. But he was not spiritual but not religious. He was profoundly yes. religious. And he was spiritual and religious. Uh, and he, you know, one of the things that really intrigued me about him was that even as he is starting a commune in Southern California to investigate ways that Hinduism and Buddhism have techniques mm -hmm. to encounter God, or as he is taking LSD in uh, the late 1950s in order to see if it can provoke a mystical experience of God, or when he's going to India and like finding a guru in the early 19, in the uh, early 1960s, he is coming back and he's going to church the very next Sunday at Riverside church you know, week yeah. after week after week, he's sitting on the board of trustees. He's on the music mm -hmm. committee. Like he is, he is a, you know, religious person. But when you ask him, you know, well, what goes on in the church? He'll say, well, the meeting of the board of trustees at Harper and brothers is the same yep. as the meeting of the board of trustees at Riverside church. It's just a bunch of guys sitting around like making decisions based on what, how much things cost. Like it's, there's nothing spiritual about it in the church. And similarly, his understanding of, of real spirituality was that it happened alone and it happened in small groups, small groups. of He called them cell groups, like eight, 10, 12 people. You know, once you have 25, once you have 50, once you have 700 people in Riverside Church, you know, what's going on then is something else. It's it's a spectacle. And uh, so. So, yeah, I mean, it's really. Yes, he did help pave the way for spiritual but not religious by elevating spirituality, which we associate with experience over religion which is increasingly associated with empty ritual, you know, dogma, yeah. all this kind of stuff. Uh, and he, he like gives voice to that, uh, that, as I said before, was there before him, but it's amplified by, by, um, by the books that he's, he's selling and, and promoting. Yeah. He seems like a very fascinating guy that you would love to go get coffee with. You're like, I, I feel like there's a lot of questions I would like to ask him. He seems like he knows where all the bodies are buried and he seems to have like this genuine personal curiosity that's, that's feeding all of this. And I, I understand that you could easily go, okay, what he's trying to do is sell a lot of books to a lot of people and maybe he's just trying to make a big audience. But it seems like there's like this genuine like personal curiosity that this is all driven by his own, you know, and I mean, it's positive, like insatiable desire to have more experience or another experience with the divine uh, one of the, yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, for me, that's the through line, you know, the book tries to tell a story about religion publishing in the United States. It tries to tell a story about it, one religion editor and, but it also tries mm -hmm. to tell a story about, you know, a kid from rural Ohio who is born at the beginning of the 20th century in 1900 and has this crazy experience of God and then is obsessed for the rest of his life with trying to recapture it. And mm -hmm. to do that, he goes and finds all these people who have had similar experiences. And then 
he befriends them. And then he says, hey, you want to write a book? And then they write a book. And then it becomes a bestseller. And then they write another book. And so there's this, this sort of synergy between his personal obsession and his, his professional work. And he finds a way to make that work. And, you know, there's tensions along the way. And I really focus on them in some ways at the end of the book. You know, you know does he see God again? You know, how does that, how does that work with his, with his professional life? But it's nice to have a character who's obsessed with something and who has conflicts along the way. You know, that's that's what makes for a good story. And that's certainly happening, uh, happening with X-Men. Yeah. I want to talk about one one uh, character who's obviously central to the story, a person who's very close to him. Uh, I feel like I want to call her Margarita. Maybe that's just because yeah. I live in Texas Marguerite, and I like margaritas. Marguerite, Marguerite bro. Marguerite? Yeah. Bro. Okay. Yeah. I feel weird just calling her bro because I feel like I'm just being very you know, colloquial, but, um, anyway, her name is bro. And so we're going to stick with that from here on out. Cause I can't say Marguerite very well. As I'm reading that I'm going, okay, there's this very intimate relationship. Uh, they're very close, uh, to the point where you feel the need to kind of ask, uh, some questions, make some statements. Like, was this, uh, an affair kind of relationship? Did it ever go that far as you find yourself kind of working through some of these documents. Wasn't there a folder saying uh, like discard unless it's being used for like an auto or for a biography, yeah. which seems like some, some files were missing from that document uh, or from that dossier. But um, as you're kind of picking apart this story, how does that color the way that you understand this guy and his pursuit of God and religion and all this stuff together? Yeah, that's a good question. So Marguerite Bro, you know, some people, uh, I gave an early paper to my colleagues at Boston University about, based on this archive that I found, and uh, it was about X-Men and Bro. Um, and they said, write a book about her. Like, just, she's amazing. <laughs> she's really cool. She is fascinating. And, and she really is. I mean, she was an amazing, she was an author. She was a novelist. She, she was a playwright. She wrote uh, a book about, a textbook on how to write plays. She wrote nonfiction. She wrote fiction for adults. She wrote fiction for kids. She wrote dozens and dozens of books, and she ghost wrote many books at Harper for X-Men, many of them very successful. She was also his best editor when he had a book uh, that, that, you know, needed a good editor. Uh, he was her first choice. In fact, he, uh, she, uh, she was his first choice, and she was his first choice for Martin Luther King's book, Stride Toward Freedom, but she was busy with other books. And uh, so she didn't end up serving as an editor uh, for, editor for that book. But they bonded over this guy, um, this, uh, this medium, whom she was writing a story about. And, and she wrote to X-Men and said, hey, we need to, somebody needs to look into this stuff about communication with uh, the dead. And is this real? Is this fake? Like, what's going on here? Um, and she really got X-Men interested in, in what, you know, scholars refer to as the metaphysical tradition, like not the sort of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, like world religion thing, but this this paranormal activity, you know, um, communication with spirits of the dead, uh, Ouija boards even that, that X-Men, you know, had and, and played with, uh, as did Bill Wilson, the founder of, of AA. So she plays a role in his life where she's pushing him to do these more edgy topics to kind of get out of the world religion frame and and he does, and he responds to her. But at the same time, he's saying like, you know, I can't do too too much of this weird stuff. You know, I gotta I gotta make money here. You know, and I don't want to be seen as a weirdo. Yeah. You know, so he's he's got more status concerns. 
Um, and similarly, she's really pushing him on the ethical front in a lot of different ways to to practice what she calls right livelihood, barring from from uh, the Buddha. Although she herself is a is a Christian member of, of Disciples of Christ, and and so they have a kind of tumultuous and intriguing relationship. And and it's hard to part. I mean, the letters are there's there's over a thousand letters in the in the archive uh, between them, more between the two of them than it, him and anybody else. And they're very, they're very close to one another. They love one another, clearly. They really respect one another. She's a beautiful writer. He knows it. He, he gives her, his written stuff to her primarily to look at before, any, before anyone else. Like She is his go-to editor for his own, his own work. Um, but, you know, they're both married. And um, it, I don't know. I... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And so I, I just, I, I just, in the book, I, I just kind of do the, on the one hand, this on, on the other hand, that it would probably make for a better story if I could say they definitely had a rip roaring affair, but I'm not, not sure that's the case. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, uh, you know, the movie would be a little bit more interesting if, if you, you dove into that part of their story, but, uh, yeah, it, does, it, it, it does make an important point about women in publishing probably today, but certainly then. You know, they really were relegated to behind the scenes. And in many yeah. cases, you know, these women were writing books that were signed, you know, were signed by men, yeah. you know, and, and they yeah. were, they were very talented, you know, in the case of Marguerite Broge, very talented. She had a huge influence over X-Men. She was in very many ways a sort of co, uh, co-editor, co-producer of the books that came out for a year, year after year, uh, out of his, out of his catalog. So it's important to remember figures yeah. like that. Yeah. It's, it's a important detail because things have changed so much uh, to the point where probably 40 years ago, uh, Barbara Brown Taylor, who's a fellow, uh, Harper one writer, who's one of my favorite people in the world. I remember she told me that when she graduated, I think she got a master's degree from Yale maybe. And when she finished with her Yale master's degree, the only job she could get was teaching, uh, how people, how to ride a horse and to be a secretary. And you yeah. go, Barbara Brown Taylor, who we now know to be one of the most gifted writers and thinkers that we have. And she's doing that. And so you go back Decades before, when BBT graduates from uh, Yale, you have Margarita Bro, who's just like eh, kind of behind the scenes, and it's yeah. it's an interesting relationship. Yeah. There's a lot of questions that I don't know what to do with. I have a funny uh, story about Barbara Brown Taylor. Um, I'll, I'll say it really. I want to hear it. Uh, my 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 uh, publicity person, my publicist for my book, Religious Literacy, Elena Brantley, mm-hmm. totally totally lovely woman. There was there was some point where something good happened to the book, and she said to me, "You're my favorite author I've ever worked with," and I was like, "Thank you, Helena." And she's like, "Nope, sorry, Barbara Brown Taylor, she's my favorite yeah. author." I've ever worked with. I was <laughs> like, "Okay, that makes sense." Yeah, I mean that's fair. That's fair. I mean, if you're going to come in second to someone, I mean, Barbara's a good person yes, to come in second I to. I felt very glad. No, to be even in the top five with her. Yeah. No. I mean, that's good. I mean. I know a few other authors that she probably worked with since I know Harper once catalog. So I'm not going to mention that means they like you more than Roar or Pete Enns or, well, you know, Rob Bell. To be fair, this was a, a publicist who, you know, wasn't working with everybody at, at her. Okay. Yeah. I see what you did there. I see what you did. That's impressive. Uh, okay. Um, two questions. First question that we're going to get you out on. Uh, two questions, though. You have to answer both of them. First one, what um, – 
what part of the story, which we haven't discussed so far, uh, was the part that you were most surprised by? And this is kind of an open-ended question. You can go wherever you want with it. But uh, what did we cover today that you found to be one of the most central parts of this, this guy's story? I think I learned new things about Martin Luther King because he published King. Um, there's, there's letters about uh, King's first book, Stride Toward Freedom, that no King scholar or scholars of you know, the civil rights movement have seen. And there's interesting details about how that book was written and the influences on the book. There's a lot of debates about King, uh, to what extent ghostwriters played a role in writing his books, um, to what extent his books are a good place to look for the real Martin Luther King. And I think that I think that this book, the chapter on King, which is also a chapter on um, Howard Thurman, another civil rights mm-hmm. uh, pioneer yeah. and very good friend of X-Men, uh, published more than a dozen books with X-Men, um, I think that chapter uh, has some interesting, interesting things to say, particularly about that that uh, first book and about King's role as author. And I think it emphasizes the way that King really was in charge of the writing of his books, and he resisted efforts by like well-intentioned white liberals like X Men to sort of tone things down um, in his in his writing. So I was intrigued by that, and surprised by that. Yeah, yeah, that's very fascinating, and. Uh... The, the Thurman Dr. King relationship is, is always an interesting one. Um, okay. Since y- you wrote this book uh, for Harper one uh, about kind of like the hero of Harper one, uh, you don't need to respond to this, but if you're forced to do this, just blink twice right now, just between you and me. So I'll know, but uh, congrats. I hear that you got a seven book deal after you published this one. So um, it seems like it's worked out great for you. And uh, it was so a great not, business decision. That is so, so <laughs> not true. But, you know, it is the case. It is the case that when Mark Tauber, who was the publisher then of Harper One, uh, when I came with, to him with this book, he, he was he thought, this is great. You know, X-Men had written two books about the history of Harper, not about Harper mm-hmm. One, but the history of Harper. Um, X-Men in his retirement did that. And, and and Mark Tauber definitely saw this book as you know, a history of, of the business he was involved, he was involved with for much of his, his career. So it is, it is a backstory about, you know, about, um, Harper one, but no, there, there was no, um, deal <laughs> forthcoming from my willingness to, <laughs> to write, to write. Uh, well, let me, let me say again, it, uh, for those who are like, Hey, I don't want to read a book about a book about books, right? Like that sounds very Seinfeldish, like it's a show about a show, but, um, it, it really tells a story of kind of the, the fabric of, American religion and how it came to be what it is. So, uh, like I said, appreciate what you did. It was interesting the way you tied all these stories together. And uh, thanks for coming back on the show. It's great seeing you again. Thanks for having me, Luke. Appreciate it.